You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 53 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, our bi-weekly look at the uh, labor movement in all its glory. Um, one of our favorite topics of conversation on this podcast has been, uh, well women and work and whether or not the uh, lean-in model of working really, really hard and hoping that neoliberalism is nice to you works out. And so a friend of the podcast, Corey Robin, called to my attention a story in the Boston Globe recently about um, Sheryl Sandberg, um, Facebook's chief operating officer and author of the famous book Lean In. And Cheryl Sandberg is going to be giving a class day speech. Let that name sink in for a second. Class day speech at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And at a Hilton Doubletree Hotel in Cambridge, Massachusetts on property owned by Harvard University. More about the neoliberal university later in this podcast. Um, The housekeepers at this hotel are trying to organize. Um, The hotel is, of course, not real big on this idea, and Harvard is, you know, not terribly helpful either. So the housekeepers, who are mostly, you will not be surprised to hear, women, sent a message to Sheryl Sandberg asking to meet with her and to have one of the famous lean-in circles where women get together and talk about how they're going to work really hard to take over the world. And Sheryl Sandberg has no time for the housekeepers. And as Corey put it, uh, these housekeepers asked Sheryl Sandberg to lean in with them. What happened next will not amaze you. Because we know how this story goes, right? Um, We know what leaning in is actually about. And it's not actually about hotel housekeepers who are working very hard to not only do their jobs, but to then form a union to actually improve those jobs. It's about Well, I mean, mostly it's about selling books, but that's another story. Um, In any case, we will keep you updated on this. But um, Corey makes the point, and I think it's a good one, that um, a lot of people lately have been wringing their hands about college students being mean to celebrated speakers such as former NYPD Chief Ray Kelly or Condoleezza um, Rice, Condoleezza another famous leaner in her. IMF head Christine Lagarde, speaking of women who lean in real hard. Um, and we've been told that it is just not nice for these speakers who are being invited to, you know, engage in some sort of honest intellectual debate to be yelled at or voted down by the students whose salaries are paying their generous speaking fees. So, as Corey says, perhaps when these commencement speakers are coming to have their deep intellectual exchange, they could be pressured instead to actually, you know, put their money or their spare time where their mouth is. Well, from Sheryl Sandberg to um, our economic recovery, which apparently uh, isn't the lean-in concept is not working out so well for the number of low-wage workers. Sheryl Sandberg's doing great. Right, right. Well, see, that's the that's just the thing. Uh, the New York Federal Reserve just said in its recent update that um, we are in technically speaking, in economic recovery, and that, quote, employment has now returned to levels seen prior to the Great Recession, but, according to Think Progress, quote, the types of pro- the types of jobs created during the recovery are not the same as those that were lost during the recession. Uh, so what does that mean? Translation, we have jobs again, they're just crappy ones. Um, so, uh, basically, what well, the... Well, some said, of us have jobs again. Right. So those of us who are lucky to have jobs again are clinging to crappier jobs than the ones that were lost. But it's basically a reiteration of something that many Americans have been sensing this whole time, which is that we we actually have like sort of a net loss of um, middle income, decent paying jobs. And more of those uh, positions have essentially, and those workers, um, have shifted to lower earning levels. Uh, So basically you have something, you know, 
things that are closer to good jobs being replaced with, um, you know, jobs that are less secure, that pay less overall, that have fewer benefits. Um, many of them are just part-time. So overall, there's just a general creeping precarity in the so-called recovery workforce. So um, sadly, under the rules of economics, this is still considered a recovery, even though the vast majority of the people who are shifting into those low-wage jobs are not experiencing really very good economic times. A lot of that is due to the shed of um, hundreds of thousands of public sector workers workers since the recovery began in 2009. Uh, much of this has uh, happened to K-12 through teachers. And Think Progress notes that this is actually a reversal of trends that were seen in past recessions where you actually had um, public sector growth during the recovery period. So um, in addition to this sort of general de-skilling and sort of a shift to low-income positions, you also have a shrinking of the public sector and the growing corporatization of the workforce and, and an enlargement of private sector jobs that, you know, guess what, pay less and are less secure than the public sector unionized jobs that were lost. So basically, in the end, low-wage jobs are about a fifth of the jobs lost during the economic crisis and more than two-fifths of the jobs gained in the recovery. Um, in other words, the upside-down economy is getting even more polarized and even more um, lopsided. So there's your recovery for you. Very, such recovery, much job. I don't know. Um, so, well, today in Seattle, I cannot bring you the news yet on what the city council votes on on the $15 an hour minimum wage, but I do have another story from the Seattle area. Um, we've talked a little bit on this podcast before about the quote-unquote sharing economy and how it often ends up being less about sharing, which is great, and more about making money for a small company at the expense of workers and often regulations and, you know, sometimes some price gouging, but we'll leave that aside for the, the moment. Taking the story is about drivers, in this case for the ride services, um, translation, fare taxis. Um, if you live in New York, you're used to calling a black car service for pretty much everything. Um, in any case, Uber and Uber X, which is its slightly cheaper version, um, are trying to form an association to protect their rights and, uh, they say, improve safety. About 250 drivers with the services are meeting with Teamsters Local 117 in Washington to try to have some say in the city's regulations um, on the service, on their pay, on, you know, other things. The drivers, like other workers that we've talked about on this podcast, are classified as independent contractors and thus cannot actually join the Teamsters Local. But as we've seen with the port truck drivers and other um, groups of independent contractors like taxi workers here in New York, they can still have quite a lot of power if they come together. Um, this is, again, like the port truck drivers who in many cases are organizing with the Teamsters, they're not waiting for some decision that they're actually employees to take some collective action and put some pressure on the companies that employ them. I mean, this is, again, I should mention, right, taxi drivers are usually classified as independent contractors as well, and that has not stopped them, particularly in New York, from several strikes and some actions like we talked about on the podcast with um, Ruth Milkman recently. So... It will be interesting to see what happens. Seattle is also expecting a referendum on the November ballot about the regulations of these um, ride-sharing companies. And I, I still, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it's ride-sharing when you're paying somebody to drive you from point A to point B. That just still sounds like a car service to me. But hey, I'm a New Yorker. What do I know? So it was a big day for the labor movement last week when the International Trade Union Confederation voted in Jeff Bezos of Amazon and now the Washington Post as the world's worst boss. And basically, they decided that on a global scale, Jeff Bezos really takes the cake for screwing over workers on both sides of the Atlantic, in fact. They called out Amazon's operations in both Germany and in the U.S. Uh, for massively exploiting their warehouse workers, or rather, as they call them, fulfillment centers. Um, it sounds so creepy when you say I it I know, like that. fulfillment centers, um, especially <coughs> when you realize that, you know, they have workers and they're laboring these massive shifts, walking the equivalent of 
of, you know, like miles per day, um, you know, in, in the warehouse aisles and sometimes working in um, over 100 degree heat. So uh, not too much fulfillment going on in there. But Oof. so basically uh, they called out Amazon as part of this uh, kind of, I guess you could say like sort of a new trend in uh, precarious labor in which you have online retailers and other assorted low wage uh, retail outlets like Walmart siphoning off their logistics workers and putting them in these extremely precarious working conditions and giving them essentially no rights and um, actually squelching any organizing efforts that are taking place uh, within these industries. Um, Germany is actually kind of an exception to the Amazon business model in the sense that workers' councils and unions are very strong in Germany. And what the German workers have been doing in recent months is uh, stepping up the pressure, staging protests, public campaigns, as well as some spontaneous strikes to put pressure on Amazon to properly classify them, not as logistics workers, but as standard retail workers, and thus give them access to better benefits, more secure jobs, etc. Lucky German workers. I mean, if if only American workers had you know access to even and that kind of representation. <coughs> but there are thousands of workers in Germany who um, you know are definitely paying attention to what Amazon's global hegemony is going to do to this you know model of work and workplace organizing in Germany that has generally served workers better than just you know rampant neoliberalism like we have in this country. But Amazon continues to stonewall. The union has been agitating on the German Amazon workers' behalf. And, of course, uh, if you follow Amazon workers in the U.S., you'll know that um, we're even further behind in terms of just agitating for better worker standards and uh, some modicum of job security. So there's a lot of action going on against Amazon, and, and their response so far, has, which is to ignore workers and insist that you know they treat their workers well and that they are you know, setting a new industry standard, that critique is basically what defines Amazon's neoliberal business model and also what earns Jeff Bezos the uh, coveted title of world's worst boss. Congratulations, Jeff. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Uh, last Saturday, a group of renegade artists and creative workers made waves at the Guggenheim uh, in Manhattan by staging a spontaneous protest um, that involved the plastering of the pristine museum walls with Italian futurist-inspired posters, and they were demanding workers' rights. Um, if this seems incongruous with the general aesthetic of the Guggenheim. Um, they were actually uh, taking a satirical spin on the Italian Futurist exhibit that was also going on at the same time, but they were calling out Guggenheim for its massive development project to create a Guggenheim branch in Abu Dhabi on this oasis-like island that is going to become sort of a commercial development slash cultural center for the United Arab Emirates. And it's being constructed using um, massive amounts of migrant labor, mostly from um, South Asia and uh, the Guggenheim, as well as the UAE, um, as well as the entire uh, guest worker system uh, there has been uh, criticized uh, for years by human rights activists for massive labor violations and substandard working conditions. And the Guggenheim protest is uh, part of a groundswell of opposition to these elite cultural and intellectual institutions that are um, building developments in Abu Dhabi. Um, another campaign, parallel campaign that is going on is uh, surrounding uh, NYU's gleaming new campus in Abu Dhabi. Um, and we spoke this week uh, with uh, NYU professor Andrew Ross, who is um, active with both campaigns against the Guggenheim as well as um, the NYU administration trying to um, hold them accountable for the labor abuses that are going on in the projects that they have contracted there and also trying to create a public dialogue here um, in the U.S. on the role of higher education institutions and cultural institutions like the Guggenheim in um, uh, in promoting fair labor practices or at least in 
um, upholding uh, you know basic standards of economic fairness and economic justice when they do uh, deal with parts of the world where that is uh, not so much in vogue. So here's Andrew Ross. Um, this is uh, right before the protest action at the Guggenheim, and uh, this is right before they had a little you know confrontation with security, and their posters are probably ripped down. Um, but here he is talking about uh, what uh, they're demanding of these institutions. What, are you uh, laying out any proposals for actual options? Are you asking them to yes. fully withdraw or like uh, somehow change their practices dramatically? That sort of thing. Yeah, we have two sets of demands this time. One is uh, the proactive part is to try to help implement Gulf Labor's recommendations, the ones in the Gulf Labor report. There's a long list of things that are asked for in that report, including inviting the ILO to come in and take part in the negotiations. The second part, the second ask, is something that's more specific, I think, to Gulf than to Gulf labor, which is we, we want the trustees to start a conversation about reshaping the mission of museums like this. If they are going to operate offshore, if they're going to operate in a truly ethical and sustainable way, then they have to start this conversation. And this is and the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi, the perfect place to start that conversation. Right. Do you think that's a conversation that needs to be happening across the entire sort of Guggenheim industry, as it were? I mean, there's all this talk of the Guggenheimization of various cities around the world in terms of just it being so influential, like leaving its stamp essentially wherever it goes. So. Yeah. Um, I, th I think it's, uh, it, I mean, it's, it's something that um, that some of the, the top people in the Guggenheim has discussed with us, that, that we might be part of their intent in responding. They haven't done it so far. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a reminder that the opportunity is there. Um, and... Uh, it's not obviously not just the Guggenheim. It's every big museum yeah. uh, that, that has that kind of uh, leverage and that mm -hmm. kind of influence. Right. Uh, but the Guggenheim is in pole position to really lead the way. And that was Andrew Ross speaking at the Guggenheim last Saturday, right before a protest action. And now we're going to go to um, an interview that I did with him uh, earlier uh, that was talking about, more specifically, about the NYU campaign and uh, what uh, you know academics as well as NYU community members should keep in mind about what they're doing in Abu Dhabi and what we can do to hold them accountable. So in response to this latest investigation by the New York Times, uh, the university issued uh, some statements uh, distancing themselves from the accusations, but also vowing to do more. And I was wondering if you could sort of outline what your coalition thinks of the response so far and what you'll be demanding uh, going forward. Well, actually, we, we sent a letter last week. Uh, this is before the New York Times article came out. I can send you that. The Coalition for Fair Labor. That has 260 signatures or something we collected in a couple of days. And so that was sent out at the weekend before the New York Times article appeared. And it does refer to the Gulf Labor Report from Gulf Labor. That's a different coalition. <laughs> That's the Artists and Writers Coalition that uh, is mostly focused on the Guggenheim. We made our own visit to Abu Dhabi in March and visited Sadiat Island and also several off-island labor camps. <clears throat> so we issued our own report in May, uh, early May, and um, and that's on that website, the Gulf Labor Coalition website. And, um, and there's a list of recommendations there coming out of our findings. And so the NYU letter from last week um, is asking the administration to uh, to help implement the recommendations that Gulf Labor made. That's the link between the two campaigns. What, uh, what the New York Times report really, all it did really was confirm our findings uh, from March and indeed the findings of every independent investigator who's gone there. But uh, being in the front page of the New York Times makes a big difference so people take notice. And so 
you know, for example, our administration immediately responds in some length to the press report, but it hasn't responded to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, right. And and this is and that it's a serious matter because the fact is the coalition's been been doing research for several years and had advised the administration not to hire this monitor and had made other recommendations over the years, very few of which were taken up. The upshot is that they shoot themselves in the foot by not listening to faculty and students. And now it's sort of blown up into this PR crisis, essentially, mm-hmm. that they're trying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any confidence that now that it has become front page news that they will actually act, or, or do you feel like they'll just do this is more of an attempt to kind of sweep things under the rug? Well, it's a good question. The NYU's administration has been under a lot of pressure for a number of reasons for the last couple of years. And John Sexton in particular is uh, has you know, lost a lot of his authority and credibility. So if there ever was a time when the administration might have responded in a more productive way, it would be or it should be now. And, you know, we have started conversations with the administration around this. We've urged them really to take a different path, not respond in defensive ways and not respond by deflecting responsibility, but to respond in a very proactive way so that NYU comes out of this having done something good. And that's basically what we're asking for. We're asking for a a commitment to have a research initiative that would look into some of the challenges facing uh, migrant workers in the Emirates, and also asking NYU to invite the ILO to take part in conversations. Now, both of these things, of course, require action by the state, and everyone knows that the state is a sticking point here for the most part. Qatar, if you look across in Qatar, you find that there's been a lot more progress made there recently. Of course, they have a much bigger PR problem. Like all the world's football fans yeah. there. Why yeah. do that? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, however, they have been more receptive to talks with the ILO and also Human Rights Watch and also the ITUC, International Trade Union Congress, and they announced last week that they were there'd been a kind of breakthrough, at least on paper, that they're going to reform parts of the kafala system. You know whether that happens remains to be seen, but that was a breakthrough of sorts. There's no reason in the world why the Emirates couldn't do a similar thing, but they've been much less receptive. You know they banned Human Rights Watch. The ILO has said no in whatsoever. So that's what we're asking for. And both NYU and the Guggenheim are in a position as stakeholders to to ask for the ILO to be invited. They could do that. They could do that, which is why we're asking. And there, they would be an appropriate you know, international body that oversees global labor standards to have at the table. I guess I'm just wondering what the, what the bottleneck for these stakeholders are. I mean, are they so afraid of perhaps losing the financial assets they've already invested if the project doesn't go through. I mean, it seems like as a chief investor, they should have considerable leverage. Or is the financial relationship such that the state is in a position or the contracting companies are in a position of strength? And I don't imagine it would be very good PR for Abu Dhabi to kick NYU out, right? So what's, you know, what are they afraid of, I guess? What are they afraid of? Well, that's a good question. I mean, it's all their money, for one thing. NYU and the Guggenheim don't have a financial stake. I mean, they have a huge investment in terms of their brand and uh, the commitment of the, the institutions. But the, the money itself is all coming out of the, the UAE Treasury. What they have at stake is, I mean, well, it's not a question of money, first of all. There's no shortage of money. Like these, the problems could be resolved very easily. It's a question of power. In a society like this, you have this vast servant class, and to preserve the privileges of being able to call upon that servant class, you need to make them particularly vulnerable and precarious and docile, really control them in all sorts of ways. Throwing money at them by paying them more, giving them more social mobility, allowing them to live where they want to live, which are the things we ask for in our Gulf labor recommendations, and also the right to organize, 
These aren't the things you grant to a servant class. And usually the system falls apart fairly quickly if, uh, if those kinds of things are granted. So I don't think it's a question of money here. The amount of money that's been spent on Saudi Island is just is astonishing and is mind-boggling. Are you saying that NYU is simply afraid of challenging directly these huge investors, despite the fact that uh, NYU's brand on the line and, and to some degree Abu Dhabi, I imagine, is inviting these people in in order to brand itself, right, as, as um, kind of, you know, a yeah. modern state, you know, that is uh, ready to, uh, to open up to the global economy and to, you know, the global academic world. And like you said, you know, it's not a question of money. So what is holding things back? Is it the fact that the leadership in Abu Dhabi is very afraid that the Kafala system will unravel? Um, or is it just kind of like an unwillingness to admit wrongdoing on the part of the state. Yeah. Well, quite possibly all of these things, we don't have too many insights into the way that the internal power structure works in, in the Emirates. It's very tight, very close. And the families that are at the center of it <clears throat> have, their, have their fingers in everything in every part of the pie. The, the overriding goal is to polish the national brand, I think. And obviously, yeah, having all these top brands is part of that. But they don't have a lot of experience, obviously, in in this business, in the statecraft business. They're not very old. They're not very old states. Um, they mostly rely on these professionals they bring in from elsewhere, usually from the region, mostly from Arab states, from other Gulf states, or from Syria or Lebanon or Egypt. These are the people whose job it is to deliver these high-level projects to the royal family. So they're relying on their expertise. And because they're hired professionals, they, uh, you know, they're expats like everyone else. They don't necessarily have citizen rights themselves. I mean, they're, they're obviously their position is not as precarious as migrant workers but they could be sent home at the drop of a hat. And certainly they're expats, but, you know, they're not state actors, right? And so it creates this very exactly. uh, strange, yeah. you know, dynamic. You have the people with money coming from overseas. You have the workers without money who are also not citizens. And then you have a leadership at the top that is essentially insulated from any kind of real political right. challenge or criticism. That's it. Yeah, that's it. And the people at the top, when they get anxious, they, they do silly things. You know, they stopped the printing of the New York Times yesterday, for example. Um, the New York Times didn't appear in, in the Emirates for one day simply because of that story. Did you have a sense of any, like, labor struggles or clashes that had happened or people who had run afoul of the authorities, anything like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's strikes all the time there. Mm -hmm. are very rarely reported. I mean, the t we, we heard all about the BK Gulf strike, for example, when we were there. It had never been reported anywhere, um, and um, and we documented it in our report. And the Times piece actually leads with that strike. Um, you know, several hundred workers deported in the wake of the strike, and there were several thousand workers involved in it. There are a lot of strikes and insurgencies, and uh, and and that's the response. They get deported immediately because they don't want them talking to the press. I guess I'm just wondering, you know, what is uh, what is the appropriate role of NYU as a potential, yeah, as a stakeholder, um, but also, you know, an indirect employer of these people um, in terms of improving their labor conditions. I mean, I imagine that part of your demand is that workers are empowered or allowed to organize in the, in the workplace and, um, you know, that that is part of ending this Kafala system. I mean, do you, do you feel like NYU really um, is in a position to be doing that? Or do you need folks like trade union conference to uh, to intervene and, and kind of be the one being the voice of, of organized labor um, or of labor in general on projects like these? Uh, I think both of these things, Michelle, there is a role for NYU to play as with any university. You know, they can they sponsor research as policy oriented research. I mean, we do this all the time in New York, uh, you know, People do research that's, that's supposed to feed into urban policy or, you know, welfare policy or whatever. And sometimes the policymakers pick up the research and use it. And there's every reason why that should be the case, that, that NYU and Abu Dhabi and here 
in New York should be doing the kind of research that's oriented towards policy changes in the kafala system. That, to me, would be an appropriate role for the university to play. Given it has resources to do that, and there are people, faculty and students, who are willing to work on such a research initiative. That's what we're asking for in the letter. In addition, however, um, you know, you need the appropriate body to talk to the state. And that's, you know, that's not us. That's some organization like the ILO. So I think both of these things need to happen. In terms of what the Gulf, Gulf Labor Project is a solidarity project. And Gulf Labor, part of the work we're doing in Gulf Labor is uh, trying to involve um, organizations in the source country, in Bangladesh, and Nepal, and India. Uh, these are organizations that work on and with migrant workers. And so that's a solidarity. That's one reason for it, and I should mention this, that's why we never use slavery rhetoric. Uh, it's not, uh, first of all, it's not accurate. They're, they're, the workers are not slaves. Uh, but we don't want to be seen in any way as a kind of Western recovery project, you know, saving victims. Um, we want to work directly with the organizations, to work with the workers, and build up solidarity from the ground. Because ultimately, it's their action, it's their self-organization that's going to change things. So I guess that raises the question of. I mean, NYU gets criticism from all angles, even for its operations here in the United States and especially in New York in terms of just the way it wields a lot of its uh, wealth, um, uh, often in ways that are detrimental to communities and, and to workers. And, and I guess I'm just wondering, do you still believe in the ostensible mission that NYU set out with or at least purported to have when it you know, went into the Gulf, which is saying that like we are going to... Um, you know, build a, a campus that truly lives up to NYU standards and the standards of um, of modern, you know, academia in terms of its integrity on labor rights and academic freedom and all these things. I mean, do you feel like NYU can really fulfill those goals or, or at some point do you just have to say this isn't working and we need to disengage and, you know, any complicity with the system is is going to be to our detriment and to the workers' detriment? Well, that kind of decision is above my pay level, of course. Uh, faculty, faculty were never consulted about this initiative. And if you'd asked any of us whether we thought it was a good idea, I think it's pretty obvious the answer would have been no. Right. Uh, so you would have preferred idea. that NYU just stay out of uh, Abu Dhabi altogether? No, yeah, there's no, there's no reason why, why anyone would have thought that was a good idea. Least of all, you know, people who have expertise in the regional field. They weren't consulted either. Middle Eastern studies experts. So this is entirely an initiative from the top, and um, and it's taken a lot of criticism for that as a result. But now that it's underway, and you know, people like myself have invested a lot of energy in in trying to ensure that at least there are protections there, academic freedom protections and, and labor protections. Um, we may as well do something good while we're there and help to change and better the, the lives of the, of the workers. Even though the campus is now complete, that doesn't mean to say that NYU's responsibilities have subsided. Quite the contrary. Now that it's up and running, it can actually do some good and help to change the system. I don't think pulling out is an option, really. It's not a decision we would be involved in anyway. I think something catastrophic would have to happen before that level of decision was made. With the Guggenheim, it's another matter. I mean, the Guggenheim was put on hold for a while after the Arab Spring. Now it seems to be going ahead, but the Guggenheim's come under a lot of pressure and will come under more pressure very soon. I guess it still has the option, perhaps, of pulling out to preserve its reputation. But we would rather, I think, we would rather see them stay in. Okay. Our... Um, Goal all along has been to leverage the brand to try and bring about, you know, material changes. And I mean, for me, it's not—it's not unlike the the beginning of the anti-sweatshop campaign when we focused on the big brand names. And um, the difference, however, is that with Nike and the Gap and so on and so forth, their factories—they can just move them up river or inland or to another country overnight. You can't do that with these institutions. These buildings are there to stay. 
though they will always be a permanent target to leverage. Plus their education and cultural institutions, they have a different sense of accountability than a global manufacturer of garments. So they're a much better target for a campaign. So you actually think that you would have preferred that NYU never went in, but now that NYU is in there, the best, most useful thing that NYU can do is is remain there and try to make lemonade out of this lemon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I, I mean, there would be nothing to make me happier than for NYU to emerge as a an ethical champion out of all of this. You know, mm-hmm. to turn the story to turn the story around and actually do some good. I, with our current administration, it's it's not it's, it's less likely because we have an administration that doesn't listen to its faculty and students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that uh, there's hope? Maybe that um, I mean, I, I guess I'm just thinking the in in Qatar, you you have you know even though it, it's the World Cup and it's actually you know much bigger fish to fry, and and Qatar has in some ways been more responsive to some of the international culture reform. Um seems like the, the Catholic system is so ingrained. I mean you have um you have the trade trade union congress actually you know calling for a revote and asking for, you know, the, the FIFA to withdraw altogether and just redo the entire vote. I, I guess do you do you feel like even even despite the power of NYU as an institution and um it's you know the investment of its brand in this project that there's certain things that are too entrenched? for a single institution to really change? Um, I don't know. Well that, well, that remains to be seen. You know? I mean, there are people who... Uh, um, <laughs> stupid analogy, but there, there are people who uh, who could never see the end of slavery in the South until it happened. Right. I mean, I guess, you know, the the best you can hope for if you are making the commitment to stay in is that NYU stays engaged and, you know, at least it can do whatever it can to change the existing conditions that are there now. That would be my best hope. And I think that's been our goal all along. Uh, you know, we I don't think we'd be considered a great victory if, if, say, the Guggenheim were to pull out. We'd rather see the Guggenheim do some good, and we'd rather see NYU do some good. Right. With the Abu Dhabi campus, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I guess maybe from from an academic perspective, can you maybe reflect on just, you know, <laughs> this trend of rushing to Gulf nations to set up fancy campuses there? I mean, like, it, it, I think it must strike many Americans as bizarre, um, and it seems so, uh, I guess, like, blatantly such a commercial move on the part of the institution you know it's like what 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 does this tell you about the way um you know higher education institutions in the US work as as um as you know commercial and financial entities well they're all pretty desperate for revenue and no one is i mean they are, obviously they have to put um they, they have to cover this with uh with the with the patina of uh you know the or the glow of international education, blah blah blah, but it's all about revenue. Everyone knows that, and um, and it's where the money is. Uh, and in the case of China, that's the other big growth market. Of course, China and the Gulf is where all these branches are happening. That's where the that's the um, that's where that's where the money is. That's where the students are. Yeah. We're building a campus in Shanghai right now. I mean, do you believe the NYU when they say things like, well, you know, we're we're truly bringing, you know, Western uh, democratic values or whatever to places like the Gulf and this is all part of a grand engagement I don't think, with the world? I don't think they would say that. I don't think they would say that. They would say they were asked to bring a liberal arts model to the Gulf, <clears throat> um, a full-service liberal arts degree. But I guess I, I've heard them say things, you know, that they seem to be suggesting that they are bent on, this is in some way going to help civil society in Abu Dhabi or, or that, you know, this is part of a, a broader kind of engagement with the world. Like, do you feel like that's it's even possible? Or I think some, some administrators and certainly some faculty have been paid large amounts of money to go there. 
have persuaded themselves that that is the case. And who, who I mean, some, I'm, I'm not discounting the value of the education that's being generated there. I mean, I've met students who've, who are in the course of their degree there, and they're very interesting students. And uh, they have their own um, newspaper, for example, at NYU Abu Dhabi, which is independently funded. They wanted it to be independently funded. It's a fairly unique news organ in the Emirates, let's say. And uh, and I'm sure they have very vigorous discussions and debates. And who knows what will happen. If you look historically, you look at the American universities in Cairo and Beirut that were set up by missionaries um, in an earlier time and specifically for the purpose of spreading, you know, missionary-style <laughs> Western Christian values. Those are the campuses that became a crucible for Arab nationalism in the course of the 20th century. I mean, yeah. they played a large part in the radical history of the region. Who knows? And historically, uh, they were, they've always been, they've been uh, decried time and again as tools of imperialism, and yet, you know, they've also, you know, been an incubator for some kind of change. I mean, you know, that's, yeah. as a fact. Yeah, I wouldn't discount that. I wouldn't discount that at all. So, would you teach there personally if someone asked you to? Uh, probably not. Um, I, I mean, I don't think I would be asked to. <laughs> really? Maybe he's not the guy we want I don't think I would be asked to. If I was asked to help on a research initiative that, that of the sort we are, we're petitioning for, I would be happy to do that. Let me put it that way. And that was Andrew Ross, NYU professor and activist with the Gulf Labor Campaign, as well as the NYU Community Campaign uh, against the new campus development in Abu Dhabi. So, I mean, I well, we've talked a bunch about the, the corporate neoliberal university on this podcast. And I mean, NYU is certainly sort of example number one of this, right? They're, they're building a campus in Abu Dhabi because that's what everybody needs, right? Um, and in many other places as well. And you know, it's part of their global engagement. They right? have global, global engagement with all of your money. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and it's worth noting that NYU students have the highest on average student debt when they graduate despite all of this money that we're engaging with around the world. Um, and it's an interesting sort of combination of, of cash flow and prestige and all of this. But the thing that is most fascinating here, right, is this sort of entwined circle of, of universities and cultural institutions with um, global capital. Right. And Which is, of course, very increasingly prevalent in the art world. I mean, right. we see the commodification of all sorts of art and even well, art. Well, I mean, movement. a commodification of art is not new, right? right. Art has been it's always a, been big business right. right it's always been big business it's always been supported by the rich um that's not Since news old as the hills really. right exactly the, the that's sort of how else do how else do you make right, money right. as an artist you either have a patron or you sell expensive art right right um so but i think the sort of the industrialization yeah of that it's kind an, of but the, right the 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 interesting part of it here ends up being the this global spread of these things that used to be sort of venerable cultural institutions that are now just look like ex increasingly like every other corporation. Like the, Mc, the McMuseum. Right, <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, so at the beginning when you talked to Ross at the action you, and, and you were talking about escalation and it's a really, it's a hard question to answer is like how do you actually shame, A, these giant global institutions that clearly don't have shame because corporations aren't people, and how do you actually exercise power to actually get these things to stop or change, right? Like, how does a small group of artists and a small group of professors and students, mm -hmm. mostly students, I think, um, I don't know how many other professors are involved, uh, Yeah, but, it's you know, how do, how do those people create a large enough movement to actually 
stop some of this or actually improve some of these labor practices in a place that is around the world. Yeah, um, and I think that's that's a, a question that even, you know, these these groups are wrestling with, right? right. I mean, in terms of, of tactics. And of course, this um, this always runs the risk of being called out as being this sort of, you know, you know, high-minded, highfalutin kind of like vanity protest, right? Yeah. When you have these artists, you know, halfway around the world trying to like raise awareness of yeah. this terrible scourge going on. And I think um, what's interesting is that I, I think there is um, kind of a, a way to do cultural organizing and organizing around yeah. cultural institutions that can really um, bring these issues home, but also bring these issues home, but also. Um, be conscious of that distance, yeah. right? And there has to be kind of like some constant self-interrogation that's going on. Yeah. Because frankly, I mean, um, you have power for being, you know, part of an institution mm-hmm. and being a member of one of these elite communities, right? right? I, you know, I do as as someone who's um, part of a university system. But at the same time, you know, you, um, you know, as an academic or as an artist or whatever, have to recognize like your own complicity in, mm-hmm. in a way in that yeah. system. So, and and I think that's. Kind of, especially in the age of neoliberalism, right, where yeah. everything, even culture, right, has been sort of institutionalized in a very commercialized way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what part of our lives is not complicit in some form of exploitation? Well, right? well, right. That's why I think it's it's important for artists and for particularly professors, particularly tenured professors, of whom there are fewer and fewer each year. Um, to actually take this seriously, right? To say, like, we make our money from this institution. <clears throat> we um, are a part of it. We, But we also, we granted its legitimacy, right? right? The Guggenheim is not the Guggenheim if artists say, screw you, you can't hang my art. Right. Um, NYU is not NYU if it does not have professors prestigious enough to attract those students who will spend that money. Right. Um, you can't have an entirely adjunct taught university. Well, you can, but you can't ha- you can't have one that becomes a prestige institution that, you know, induces students to graduate with the most debt in the world. Right. Um so the right, the issue of, of how you exercise the power is important. Um but also the issue of how do you get more professors to realize that they are complicit in this, yeah. to realize that they're complicit in that amount of debt, to realize right. that they're complicit in all of the, you know, their their faculty is supposed to be uh, part of governing the university, right? And right. what that means is a more and more open question right. as the university spreads across the world and, right. you know, and moves into places. partners with authoritarian regimes. Right, partners with authoritarian regimes, um, partners with giant capitalist organizations, um, all of these things that simply exist to turn a profit rather than to educate students, which is supposedly the goal of these, once again, supposedly non-profit universities. Right. And I think, you know, uh, uh, recognizing sort of the, the complicity, but also, you know, towing the line between, um, you know, just just sort of situating yourself at the, at the heart of that tension is yeah. really important. And I think it also turns on this question of like, what is the role of a university? Like, what does it mean for a university to operate as a community, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, this project was rammed through, as, as well as many other NYU projects, right, right have been sort of rammed through yeah. fairly unilaterally by the administration with very little transparency, right? And yeah. so, you know, uh, to the extent that NYU is making a big hoo-ha about how it engages openly with the world and brings all these great liberal ideals, it's certainly not practicing them in the right. way it actually runs its institution as a community. And so I think that that's like a, a necessary sort of intersection of all these right. issues. Um, yeah. You know, um, it, you know how many faculty members, right, were actively consulted <laughs> on you know whether or not NYU should even be, you know, building an avenue. I mean, of course, like Ross um, points this out in the conversation, which is the, you know, the, you know, gee, maybe we should ask like, why NYU is even there in the first place, yeah. right? You know, what, who, which stakeholders were driving this whole plan? Right. And I think, you know, you could either sort of sit back and be cynical about it and be like, well, you know, this institution is controlled by forces beyond my control. Or you could remember that, you know, to the extent that it bills itself as an institution of higher learning, right, right, or higher education, it has a social role. Um, That's... You know, and I don't think it's naive to say that, um, you know, faculty members or artists, right, who have even, you know, traditionally for time immemorial have been exploited by big money, right, that they can they can do things to resist. Yeah. And that again, and that there's a sort of responsibility there. Um, That said, I, I, you know, don't want to say that, like, 
the labor movement should only be made up of the people who are sort of, you know, doing charity for the people over there who are super oppressed. I mean, you really have to consider all of these issues, again, in a sort of, on a continuum, right, of, like, we are also in a working relationship with this institution. Um, We also understand what it's like to be exploited by this institution, not just say, like, well, we have it great over here as tenured professors who, you know, I guess I, Andrew Ross would agree with me that, right. you know, tenured professors do have it pretty good compared right. to a lot of us, including broke labor journalists. Um, but that... Or penurious grad students, but right, yes, I exactly, guess. Exactly. And so... But it's not just about that. And a, a global labor movement has to actually be based on global solidarity and right. an understanding that, like, no, we're not doing charity to save those poor, sure. exploited people in the, you know, quote-unquote third world, haha. Um, but that we really understand that these globalized institutions are exploiting us. As, right. In Absolutely. And, like, I think it's really important to sort of, like, in the rhetoric to not, like, try to co-opt, you know, other people's uh-huh. struggles and, right. like, recognize privilege where it exists, right? Yeah. But also to realize that, like, we are all precarious in different ways. Right. Um, you know, one thing that struck me is just that, like, the issue of debt comes up in so many different exactly. facets of this entire issue, right? I mean, you have migrant laborers who are, like, essentially indentured servants. They mm-hmm. go into debt just for the privilege of these, like, manual, you know, art, incredibly arduous jobs yeah. uh, in a far-flung part of the world that they yeah. where they have no rights. And then you also have an institution whose elite reputation is completely built on this, like, sort of house of debt. And so, yeah. you know, just looking at all the different ways that um, these institutions are, are built on forms of um, capital accumulation and exploitation on a global scale is really important, uh, you know. And, and, of course, we need to recognize, we need to distinguish between issues and not act like, oh, out of noblesse of lodge, I'm going to help these poor people right. in some other exactly. part of the world. But, you know, um, but also recognize, like, you know, my struggle isn't the same as yours but also recognize... That they are connected. Yeah, that they are connected. Um, and uh, otherwise, you know, people are just going to, you know, the seat of power is just going to turn different groups against each other, you know, and pit them against each other, as yep. they're so good at doing. Exactly. Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> we will, of course, talk more about the neoliberal university, um, labor across the world, etc., etc., um, on future podcasts. For now, we get to our favorite part of the podcast when we say, Arg! I wish I'd written that. So, Michelle, what did you wish you'd written this week? So, um, I picked out a piece by Mike Rose. It was actually um, not in a very well known publication, it was the blog of the American Sociological um, uh, Association. It was called Work in Progress, and Mike Rose is an education scholar who's done a lot of research and work on um, the relationship between work and education, namely higher education. Um, And he titles it, The Talkin' New Economy Blues, How Mainstream Discourse on the New Economy Diminishes Workers. (laughs) And he begins with an analysis of language, but doesn't dwell in abstraction. He locates... um, a lot of the terminology that we use to describe the new economy in uh, basically a, a class tension um, between people we see as the winners in this economy and those we see as the losers. And he basically argues there is a classist language used to denigrate workers who seem to be those left behind, right, by the new economy, by the technological revolution. And at the same time, we have a valorization of this new wave of tech workers who are, you know, uh, kind of, it's sort of a, you know, revenge of the nerds, you know, like sort of uh, um, vaunting the uh, the neoliberal individualist and, you know, sort of the unconventional genius of the Silicon Valley technocrats. Um, who are completely market-driven and, of course, apolitical, right? Um, that, that they're seen as sort of the ultimate embodiment of this post-politics world in which, you know, capital flows freely and it's just a big old marketplace of ideas, Except right? Except they're not apolitical at all. Right, exactly. <laughs> Except their, their apoliticalness is exactly what gives them enormous political clout in terms of just sloshing around both money and influence, right? But... Um, 
you know, uh, Mike Rose actually drills down to who are the other workers, right? The ones that we don't talk about generally, or when we do talk about them, we tend to sort of talk about them in pitying tones, right? And he says, one of the things that most concerns me about this story, this story of you know, neoliberalism and the rise of the new economy, is that as in a morality tale, there are the damned and the redeemed, the deficient and the virtuous. Old economy workers, unless they can be retrained and upskilled, um, are the problem, as are younger workers coming in the door without the requisite hard and soft skills. Notice hard, soft, upskilled, these you know, very vague, fluffy terms that neoliberalism, neoliberalism is given too, right? <laughs> um, just like fulfillment center. It's mm. hard and soft, um, anyway. These workers are not only the losers in their own economic lives, Rose writes, they, are all, they also collectively weaken our national position in the monumental contest of the global economy, which is, of course, a very old world idea of, of global competition. Right? Um, and, he, and then he goes on to say, consider in contrast the portrayal of those working in high tech, not the factory workers, certainly not them, but the small slice of engineers, designers, and programmers. They are teased for their geekiness and occasionally chided for their insularity. But by and large, they are depicted as exceedingly smart, hardworking, and entrepreneurial. All true. And as the youthful embodiment of an innovative and prosperous future filled with technological wonders. And Rose goes on to call into question this rather unskeptical embrace of all things tech, because it really masks the realities of economic inequality by buying into this assumption that the reason people don't succeed in the new economy is because they don't deserve to, right? And it's this rather disgusting and condescending notion that, well, if you're just not fit to make it, then you're just going to fall, you know, into the gutter uh, under this, like, new sort of... uh, um, entrepreneurial social Darwinism that is now taking over the world. And so it's taking an essentially very regressive, almost sort of feudalist idea of, of, you know, economic hierarchy and kind of putting this 21st century gloss on it and, and, uh, you know, adding a little bit of like high tech sparkle to it. And so Rose, um, in in this dissection of the language, he he sort of sounds a a warning call to us all. Don't get swept up in the zeitgeist. Don't get caught up in these, these shiny objects that we, you know, call these, uh, you know, new tech brands. Um, but, you know, tech firms like Google, they wrap their sort of egotism in this concept of, of uh, you know, being the new wave and saving the world, et cetera, et cetera, um, under this abiding belief that technology is going to solve all the world's problems. But in reality, it's actually creating many problems. And we should start listening to the workers that we're so used to dismissing as the ones left behind. Yeah, that, about listening to those workers, um... So the piece that I wish I'd done this week um, is at Color Lines by Carla Murphy, um, and it's an interview. It's titled How Co-Ops Help Produce Foot Soldiers for Civil Rights, and it's actually an interview with Jessica Gordon-Nembard, who is a professor in Africana Studies at John Jay College here in New York, and she has a new book out this May called Collective Courage, A History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. And of course, we're interested in worker co-ops around here. We probably haven't talked about them as much as we should, and maybe we'll do that on an upcoming episode. Um, but this particular interview is about the the history of the people who were left out of the way American capitalism worked had to come up with other ways to get by. Um, so, you know, I learned about mutual aid societies when I was living in New Orleans in Many of the African-American neighborhoods in that city, which at the time I lived there was 73% black, um, had been relying on these mutual aid societies for years as a way to basically share the costs of everything you needed. If you didn't have enough money yourself to pay for things out of pocket like a funeral, and you have been historically denied things like credit... um, the only way to do that is to band together. Um, this also, though, in this in this interview, Nempard explains how mutual aid societies like that led to workers' cooperatives, um, and that led to all sorts of political organizations. So the aforementioned civil rights link. She talks about the way um, talking about economic justice was sort of hard to do in the 50s um, after, you know, the McCarthy era, after the Red Scare was used to, in in many cases, particularly in the South, really crack down on black political organizing. So co-ops had to sort of be not talked about in the context of a broader movement for economic rights, but then 
they still fit into a larger struggle for um, not just you know power in the community but to for liberation um and so she connects us to struggles for other disenfranchised groups um she's looking at first nations people in canada um organizing in puerto rico and if you have any family members who were involved in this kind of co-op organizing there is a link in the piece i will put the, a link to the piece of course at the descent magazine website where she asks for people to get in touch and let them know about their family history so we will i promise have more on co-ops in the future um if you are around in New York this weekend, you can catch both Michelle and I on panels at Left Forum. Michelle, what's your panel about? My panel is about deportation in and work in the age of Obama, and it's talking about, uh, you know, as we um, hover around 2 million deportations under Obama's watch, um, what is what does that mean for immigrant rights as well as the um, labor movement in general, where immigrants have played such a prominent role in recent organizing efforts. And I'm doing a panel on Saturday with a bunch of dissent authors on cloud labor in the digital economy, which is just what it sounds like. And then on Sunday, I'm actually doing a panel with Ben Davis and Molly Crabapple, where we will talk about art and labor and class and all of those fun things. Um, no, I'm not an artist. Don't ask me how I got suckered into this panel. I will tell you all about it if you show up on Saturday morning. Nice. So We'll have links to all those panels. We will have links to all those panels on the Descent website. And if you happen to miss them, I'm sure somebody will be recording. And we will, with that, we will be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Eight, twin, You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.